Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 8th, 2023. For today, for Keenon, we are going back, back to the 70s, back more than 50 years. We already did a show this morning with the NYU historian uh, Martha uh, Hodes, uh, My Hijacking, which is her uh, fascinating uh, memoir of being um, on a plane uh, that was hijacked by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, a plane that was exploded in the desert in 1970, a time of a more romantic leftism, I get. We, we, we talked a little bit with Martha about the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and the kind of arguments they had on the plane between uh, the terrorists, if that's the right word, or liberators or activists, whatever you want to call them, and, and the passengers. And we are going back with my guest today, uh, Santi Elijah Holly, uh, who wasn't around, I don't think, in 1970 or 1973, uh, to a similar romantic period in American history, uh, a period uh, of the Black Panther Party um, and of the Black Liberation Army. He has a new book out, fascinating book, very intriguing tale, which not everybody knows about, an American family, the Shakurs and the nation they created. And Santi is joining us from Portland, Oregon today. He's doing a, uh, a reading at PALS tonight. Uh, Santi, congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. So uh, I don't want to sound too ageist, Santi, but I'm guessing you weren't around in 1970. That's a good guess. That's a really fair guess. Um, yeah, I'd rather be your age than my age. So what interested you about this project? You're a, you're a journalist. Um, what is it about the Shakurs and the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panthers that intrigued you enough to write the book about it? Well, for me, it, it began in something that actually was in my lifetime, which is with Tupac Shakur, which is probably the most familiar Shakur name, obviously. Uh, I was a fan, you know, back in the 90s when he was still alive and still performing and still recording. Um, but I didn't really understand the depth of what he was saying until I got older. And, uh, you know, and, and I embarked on this career of writing and sort of showing the connection between social justice uh, issues and popular art and entertainment. So I was looking back at Tupac's lyrics in his interviews and I was learning more about what he was talking about. And I, I was surprised to learn just how how passionate and intelligent he was about these history, these histories of black liberation fighters and the Black Panthers and everything. And why were you surprised? Because he was, you know, I think today we think of, or many people of us today think of Tupac as just being a rapper, entertainer, actor who just talks about, you know, just money and women and, and living extravagantly. Um, you know, I, I certainly did not read too deeply into his lyrics back when I was a kid. Um, but when I heard, when I learned more about his mother, Afeni Shakur, and, and her time as a leading Black Panther in the in the late 60s in New York, it made sense because he was raised that way. He was always raised with this history. And so I wanted to dive deeper into the history of, of who the Shakurs were before 
Tupac and who and how Tupac came to be who he was. And I just uncovered a whole history of this remarkable family and just how they were many people in the family were active, were leaders, uh, were influential, uh, even to this day to certain movements and certain communities. The Shakurs are are heroic. And so I just felt like I really wanted to learn more myself. And the more I did, I just uncovered this huge history, this sort of untold history that I thought deserved to be more, you know, widely known. So that's it's what funny I funny because um the show I did with uh, Martha Hodes was about how conveniently we forget. And, and, and you make the same argument. You wrote a piece a few years ago for the New Republic suggesting um, that whilst the Black Panther Party might be popular, we all know the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, the actual Black Panthers have been forgotten. Why? Is there a convenience to forgetting them, both from... White and Black America, is it a painful episode that none of us really want to remember? It certainly is painful. I think we, those of us who, I've, I've talked to people who told me that they never learned about the Black Panthers in school, not until they were older, they, did they learn about the Black Panthers. I, I knew something about their, their legend. I knew, you know, the photos of them holding guns and the Black Berets and um, just sort of standing up to police officers. Uh, but I didn't know the, the deeper history of, feeding school children, uh, providing health care to the community, um, providing legal assistance to the community. That's something that I feel like is the quieter things that we don't really learn about too much. Um, I mean, uh, they're obviously very controversial, uh, uh, Santi. There may be other people who would not necessarily agree with what, what you said. Um, how did this research change your mind about these people? Of course, who have been vilified by some because of their commitment to violence. I, I learned actually a lot um, more than I bargained for when I was learning about the, the Panthers. I didn't realize, and I think a lot of folks don't realize that though the Panthers were founded in Oakland by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, it grew so quickly across the country that there was different chapters in different cities and, and they were differences between there are major differences fundamental differences between east coast new york panthers and the west coast california panthers that soon became fatal i mean they really were and, and ironically enough this gets played out then with tupac and the, yeah. the west east coast rapping thing yeah i mean there's something about just the west coast east coast and tupac should have known better because uh it wasn't just that there was a rivalry between the two factions the panthers it was also that you know the federal government as we learned later the fbi started a, a campaign called COINTELPRO, uh, which really exploited and played up those, those sort of simmering rivalries by fabricating letters, phone calls, um, really playing the two against each other. And I think maybe, yeah, you could point that to Tupac, Biggie, West Coast, East Coast, and saying the media really hyped up this, this alleged rivalry. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the Panthers did get caught up. Um, I think they, they grew too quickly. They didn't all sort of share the same ideology, and then they ended up almost imploding. I mean, with encouragement from the FBI. Give us the background, uh, Santi. We've done a number of shows recently on different periods in African American history. We did one recently with uh, Chad Williams, a historian on W.E.B. Du, du Bois, First World War, his conflicts both on the left with Marcus Garvey and on the right with Booker T. Washington. What were the intellectual currents in the 1960s within 
the black community, within the African-American community that generated the Black Panthers. Were they, as a lot of people think, a direct outcome of the, the Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King split? Well, not maybe not so much the split, but there was a um, frustration, a growing frustration with the, the civil rights movement, sort of the incrementalism, the gradualism, the, non, the nonviolence sort of integration part of it have been going on for you know years at this point and not really showing any 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 sort of real tangible differences in the black community in, at that immediate time, especially in the north, you know. Um, so the black power movement came out of uh, Stokely Carmichael, and he was you know he worked with King, but he sort of led people, especially the younger generation of people who wanted to be more active and be more you know, build more militant and just sort of direct. direct but are, are you suggesting that this was before or after a lot of the civil rights legislation of the 60s? Or are you suggesting that for many of these people, that legislation simply didn't matter? Didn't it, make it, 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 feel, it felt like it didn't matter as far as police brutality, you know, as far as just white vigilante violence. I mean, the, the legislation, the civil rights and voting rights legislation, the, those were good. Those were real results. But as far as just people who were just, in the city and urban areas who weren't so concerned about voting, they just wanted an end to police brutality and, and, and being incarcerated. And, you know, they wanted some, they, they wanted to feel like they were actually directly involved with something besides just marching and holding signs and, you know, singing songs. They wanted to do something more active and more, you know, more just a little more exciting. Um, but they, you know, that sort of came out of like the Black Panther Party really started as a self-defense collective they just wanted to protect people in their community from police harassment and police brutality tell us a little bit about this uh, very romantic figure afeni uh, shakur here we have a photo of her from 1970 this was tupac's mom right yeah that's her, that's her mother and she uh yeah she was a black panther in harlem she was a, a leading black panther in the harlem chapter uh she was really young uh she joined she married uh the founder of the harlem black, black panther uh, chapter, which is, his name is Lumumba Shakur. Uh, those two were married, um, which is how she got the Shakur name. And she uh, was part of what was called the Panther 21 trial, which was when 21 Black Panthers in New York were uh, on charges for conspiracy to blow up different uh, places in New York to shoot police officers. There was an early, early morning raid in April 1969, and many Black Panthers uh, were jailed for you know, over two years waiting trial. And the trial itself was eight months, which was the longest at that time. And Afeni, uh, Afeni chose to defend herself during her trial. I mean, she had no legal training, no legal background, but she felt like she could represent herself because she knew that she was innocent of the charges and nobody else could really speak for her. So she just argued her case in court. Um, and while she was on bail, because a couple of Panthers were on bail at the time, and while she was bailed out, um, raising money for the other Panthers who were still in jail, she became pregnant uh, with a with a with a child who would be born only a month after she was acquitted of the charges. And that that baby was Tupac, and then she went I on to be a little bit baby. about um, Asata Shakur, another uh, very high profile figure within the Black Liberation Army who's still wanted uh, for murder. Uh, one of apparently one of FBI's most wanted terrorists at least using that word according to the fbi were who, who was she and was she in your mind a terrorist or is she a terrorist i mean that you know that word gets used a lot for different reasons and you know not not to say whether or not she 
deserves it. That's what they. That's what she is. That's what she's been uh, tagged with by the FBI. But I mean, that aside, she is definitely FBI's most wanted. She's high on the list, and she's been in exile for uh, thirty years. And uh, she she came in. She was a Panther for a short time in New York. Um, she was friends with the family. She's not, you know, the, the Shakur name isn't something that you are necessarily born into. Sometimes you take the name as a... This is the nation. In your mind, this quote-unquote American family with a K is, in a sense, a nation. I believe it's a nation. We, you know, we think of a nation as a, a nation state. This isn't the case. A nation is a, a collective of people who, by religion or ideology, have come together. You know, united, and that's sort of what the Shakurs are. They're they're a tribe of people who have taken the name to show solidarity, common cause. Um, so that's their nation. So Asada Shakur took the name in tribute to this family, right? So she, when she took the name, she was she was saying that she was aligning herself with this family that already had a really great reputation and a really great sort of honor in the community. Um, she. Uh, after she was arrested in 1973, she took the name for herself to sort of say that I'm a part of this family and I'm part of this this cause and this movement. And so she's not formally she's not formally um, related to a Fanny. Uh... No, 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 not at all. She's she's not she's not you know technically a blood relative. Many Shakurs are not blood relatives, and the way that we think of a family is blood relative. Do you see then? Um, do you see Tupac? What he did, his his art, his ideas, his behavior, as being a, a direct um, outgrowth, a, a, the next chapter, if you like, in uh, the story of the Black Panthers, of people like his mother, Afeni Shakur, and then uh, uh, Asatra as well, even if they're not related. Yeah. Is there a, a kind of a militancy in Tupac which... He inherited from his mother, but he articulated in cultural terms. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, uh, he was raised. His mother, Afeni, raised him to be to carry on that tradition, to carry the mantle, you know, take on the mantle, and to, and to continue the work that that she and the others have done. Um, she raised him to, to 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 carry that tradition on, and and he was going to. I mean, up up until you know late in the nineties, he really was committed to. Being the next generation, being the spokesman for, you know, the new the new Panthers that he wanted to start. He wanted to, you know, he was the chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a youth organization that was sort of, you know, committed to carrying on this work. He was like he was raised in the movement, and he was raised with the idea that he would pick it pick up where the others fell off. You know, where everybody sort of got scattered in the eighties. Uh, Tupac would be the the the, the next. So what exactly? The chosen yeah, one. By by the nineties, I mean obviously this was before Obama becomes president. There were changes. How would a, a Tupac um, or, or the people around him? How would they have responded to arguments? Well, certainly not an ideal country, but things are getting better slowly. That's and that's the same argument that uh, you know they were making in the in the sixties when when the old guard of the civil rights movement was saying, well, we are making some progress here, but Others, you know, meanwhile, people are still dying in the streets. People are still being shot by police. So people are being rounded up and dying. You know, yeah, I mean, ch slow changes, incremental changes sometimes aren't good enough. You know, when you're really, you see people, you see your community struggling and you see poverty around you and you see not really uh, changes that are affecting you directly. Uh, I think Tupac and I think all the others, you know, the Shakur family and others around them would have made the same argument today saying, 
you know, who cares about? We have a black president and we have uh, a Black Lives Matter movement and we have people who are putting yard signs in their window and people who are, you know, just just doing these sort of um, performative things. I think they would really call it out. I think they would call it out pretty hard, just as, just as much as they did back in the 60s and 70s. And I think Tupac, you know, if he had been alive today, I think he would have still been just as, as passionate and militant as he was, you know, when he was a young man in, in the early 90s and into the uh, mid-90s. I mentioned uh, Chad Williams earlier coming on the show talking about Du Bois. In some ways, these are the same, I mean, similar debates, at least or throughout the history of, uh, of, of the African-American community before and certainly after slavery. Um, was Tupac and the, uh, the Black Panthers, were they essentially arguing that Nothing could change in America. Were they Marxists? Were they Africanists? I mean, what what tradition in the African American intellectual tradition did they embrace? They were the Black Panthers, at least on the in Sacramento and in the West Coast of California, were did approach it from a Marxist-Leninist standpoint. They, they thought the whole capitalist system needed to change. Um, other Panthers and other movement people didn't so much get into the the, the, the sociology, the economic like side of it. They just wanted more just direct action, self-defense, self-determination. And I think, yeah, that argument between, I mean, from, from Du Bois, it goes back to Booker T. Washington and the, the differences of, you know. And the left, of course, the Marxist left. I mean, in a sense, then, they are very much like the popular front for the liberation of Palestine that, for better or worse, no longer exists. Some people might argue, Santi, that that kind of ideology is slightly absurd. Would you agree? The ideology of what? Of, of revolution? Marxist Leninist revolution. It's never, firstly, it doesn't. I'm not going to speak for them, for people who believed in it. I mean, I'm just speaking for what they believed in and saying uh, they were, pro- they, they had a crisis. I mean, they really believed in the 60s and 70s that they were facing revolution in their time and that they were the ones that who were going to bring about that revolution and lead the revolution. They don't think they really had a clear idea of what that revolution would look like and what the end result would be. I mean, they were young and they were idealistic. And, that, and there was a time of worldwide revolution and lots of different, you know, in Africa and Asia, there was lots of uprisings. And they looked towards right. uh, what was happening in Algiers and what was happening in, you know, in China. And they're happening just all over the world. They were looking to different countries and different organizations and different radical groups as inspiration. I think they did take a lot of pieces from these different groups, but I don't think they really knew what they're up against for one thing i mean the american system the american beast is 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 not something that you can just have a guerrilla warfare with you know a few of your dedicated soldiers i mean they i think that they made a mistake in not really building the community support uh you know widespread community support before striking before choosing to go out and strike um i think they needed to slowly build you know and that's what they were arguing against is the slow gradual building of support um but they just they saw a crisis happening in their community and they just said well all we can do is just get guns and, and go out there and try to organize the people but you know i think they just didn't know what they're up against and they're a little too idealistic and a little too quick to quick to act in a lot of cases you suggested earlier that they might have poo-pooed the black lives matter movement why that seems in a sense a kind of uprising certainly not a violent one but uh, a, a very passionate movement for justice. What do you think their critique would have been of Black Lives Matter? I would say, and actually, somebody who I uh, spoke to 
for the book during this book, Cleo Silvers, who was who was a Black Panther and a young lord and worked with the community in the Bronx and was very just influential, very passionate person. Um, her issue with Black Lives Matter, this is somebody who was you know part of the movement uh, back then, is that they are she doesn't see what they're doing in the community that they live in. Like people who are consider themselves Black Lives Matter activists um, are, and, and this you know in her opinion, not or ignoring communities' needs. I mean, because she was involved with going out and buying groceries for, for neighbors and feeding school children. And she did all and providing health care for people who needed it. Uh, I think people involved back then, when they would look at Black Lives Matter, again, not to speak for everybody, um, but to the people who I spoke to, said, I don't see what they're doing for their, to address their immediate community's needs right here and now, rather than some, some objective that's sort of unclear you know, what the actual goal is. Um, I'm sure there is a goal and I'm sure there's an objective, um, but as far as the here and now, like what are we doing to address, you know, right now people's needs in your, in your immediate community rather than a big um, movement, you know, the movement should just begin in your community and then spread from there. It's interesting, um, Santi, your, your book, it got a nice review in the New York Times by Michael Jeffries, but he was slightly ambivalent. I'm sure you've read the review. He I think my sense, and I can't speak on behalf of him, is he doesn't think you address some of the 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 the, the, the political aspects of, of the Shakurs and the tragedy around the family. And it's interesting that Jeffries actually was on the show. He has a new book out, um, Black and Queer on Campus. And I did a show yesterday with another very successful writer, Mecca Jamila Sullivan. She teaches. Uh, at Georgetown University, she has a book out, uh, Big Girl, about um, uh, a cultural element, uh, identity, uh, sexual identity. What do you think, Santi, the, the Panthers would think about this shift into a focus on intersectionality and sexuality and identity? inside and outside the, the black community. Do you think they would embrace that or do you think they would argue that there needs to be more of a focus on politics and socioeconomics? You know, um, it depends which Panthers we're talking to. Because again, they're not, they weren't all a monolith. I mean, a lot of Panthers like Elaine Brown, you know, later, and, and especially the women in the Panther Party really did push a lot for intersectionality. I mean, including like gay rights, women's rights, um, just uh, so that I think they were already arguing for that. I mean, they were definitely on the forefront of that. Others, especially a lot of men in the, in the party, didn't really focus so hard on gay rights and women's rights, you know. Uh, but I think today, I think they would recognize, you know, I re recognize that that's all sort of part of the same struggle. Um, and I think they really, I think they really would embrace it more. I think rather than just having it be a sort of a side part, a side issue. I think it, it could really be stronger, stronger, str more strongly promoted. Really, I mean, and, and with that, with uh, the New York Times review, I think it was a fair assessment. I mean, I'm not. When I wrote the book, I didn't say I, I wasn't trying to give the answers. Really, I mean, I don't have the answers. I'm not speaking for. Right. I think his uh, point was he wasn't sure what nation they created, whether they really did create mm -hmm. one, or whether they was just a an interesting sort of unusual yeah, that's, that's, outrageous family. That's a fair question. And I've heard that question before. I think that's, you know, something when I titled this book or subtitled the book, you know, the Shakurs and the Nation They Created, I did want to have the conversation about, 
a nation isn't just a nation state. A nation isn't just what we think about about borders and you know a nation state. But a nation is what we what we create for ourselves. And also nations nations rise and fall. And so they created a nation because just as much as this nation created them, you know they are the products. They this, this sort of rebellion. Um, these these dissidents who 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 strike out against repression. I mean that is the American story, right? So that is that's, yeah, and we've done many shows on that. In fact, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with a historian who argued that even under slavery, uh, black Americans uh, embraced the language and symbols of the American Revolution to to articulate their own situation. He also, sorry, there's an old argument. I mean, there's a very old, you know, uh, argument about um, oppressed peoples in the U.S. Uh, particularly with black Americans or, or black people in the U.S. Uh, being consisting of uh, a nation within a nation, you know, like there's the nation of the U.S., but black people in America for, you know, for many years have, have almost existed as a separate nation within this country's borders, uh, culturally, just, you know, what folks go through. And so that is also a nation that has been created, whether or not, you know, black folks created it themselves or is created for them. It is a nation that, you know, we have... How, how did the nation you write about, Black Panthers, Black Liberation Army, did it connect with the nation of Islam? Is there a connection or are they entirely different stories? It's, you know, I, I, I talk about the nation of Islam a little bit because I talk about, well, for, you know, I have to talk about Malcolm X. Malcolm X was sort of the, the figurehead, the, the patron saint, the martyr to the Black Panther Party and everybody that came out of them that was a little more leftist, militant-minded, um, Malcolm X was so he came out of the nation of Islam and he was already out of the nation of Islam when he was, when he was murdered um, but the nation of Islam did they were, they were they put forth the argument that black Americans need to have their own nation in the US an independent black nation in the southern US um, nation of Islam put forward that idea they didn't really have a plan to do so but they said this is what we should do we shouldn't integrate we should separate have our own land have our you know that's that was the argument and that argument was picked up by many people following them who weren't a part of the nation of islam but still believed that the only way to survive in america was to have to to break away and to, to secede but also to secede with it with you know with peacefully which was never going to happen but there are various organizations that still exist the republic of new africa Really, that's that's their argument. The Republic of New Africa is is a is an organization that does believe in strongly believes in the need for a separate black nation in the southern U.S. Finally, it, it seems like the real irony of so much of American history, but particularly the the tragedy, but also the inspiration of somebody like Tupac Shakur. He's no longer around. Yeah, very controversial figure for lots of different reasons. And yet, he's had an enormous influence on the culture. So, yeah. uh, and, and you noted that the Black Panthers, uh, they're popular, but they're forgotten. In an odd way, it's the same with Tupac. He's everywhere and nowhere. He's permeated the culture. I mean, I even saw a piece suggesting that AI was the natural outgrowth of, of rap music. I mean, obviously, that was slightly speculative. But... My, my point is, what, what kind of historical conclusion do we need to come to about uh, Tupac and indeed this whole American family in the sense that they're, they're so central and yet they've also been simultaneously conveniently forgotten? 
I think Tupac has actually been uh, seeing a resurgence in just recent years, especially this last year. Um, he was just given a, a walk of a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame yesterday. There's a four-part TV series that explores his his relationship with his mother, Fanny. Um, there's a lot of other there's, there's multiple books coming out about him, and I think people are starting to sort of look back at him, like I like you know, like I did, look at him and realize what he was talking about and how prescient it all is today. And to say, oh, the things he was talking about today are still relevant today. He's he can still be a voice for us because we don't really have a lot of popular entertainers today who are as you know, who, who come out so forcefully and so passionately about these issues, about social justice and racial justice issues, uh, as Tupac did. And we have a few, but not who are, have such a, a platform as Tupac did. So I think that's why we're, a lot of us today are looking back at Tupac and then looking back at his mother and looking back at his whole family is because it is such an important story to see what we're dealing with today and the various uh, concerns but also the challenges and the warnings that, you know, the things that they lived through and survived, we have to really take that into consideration and how we go forward and what our next moves are going to be, you know, if we're going to keep up this fight. We meaning the African-American community or the working class? We as a a country, you know, because we are, again, facing a crisis. So I think the whole country is in it together, you know, um, and we're, facing really like sort of polarity and division like we haven't seen in many, many years. And maybe, you know, and I'm just, it seems like there's a lot of similarities that are happening 60s and 70s to now and how we go forward and address those things. You know, it, it really, it really is important to look back at, you know, what happened before and, and who, who died, who, who sacrificed um, to sort of address the same things that we're addressing today.